This is Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries. This is Jonathan Doolin here once again with Dr. Stan May to discuss some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year chronological study Bible. Um, We're in the kingdom era. The first question is, when David brings the ark up to Jerusalem, what do David's actions teach the people and us about worship? Watching David worship is, uh, in some ways for us, almost embarrassing. We're like, David, why are you dancing? But what David demonstrates is that David dances before the Lord. He dances with all his might. He puts his whole heart into his worship. David demonstrates that for him, the God he serves is so worthy of his worship that even if men call him a fool, he cares not. He wants to honor the God of his life. He wants to glorify him. The way he structures and organizes the worship, now that he's bringing the ark up the right way, sacrifices, offerings, praises, trumpets, symbols, and then to ensure that this worship continues, he establishes the Levites in orders. In fact, as we read later on in the text, we'll see how that David will literally establish a new order for what the Levites do that supersedes what Moses gave them to do during the days of the tabernacle and becomes the law for the Levites and priests in the temple. But it also ensures continuance of worship. By In our, sto- in our story we read in this passage, he commands Korah, and Asaph, and they begin to develop choirs. So there's regular singing. David had to love singing. He loved the psalms that he wrote, and he loved to sing. And he, and he created an atmosphere where joyful singing permeated the worship of God's people. Amen. Something we were talking about um, before we started recording is the fact that David, this mighty warrior, right, who leads the people out in battle. The giant slayer is also the psalmist. And so this man, uh, there's a, there's a, a biographer that says about um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer that he was a giant before men, um, but a child before God. And I think that could be well said of David as well. Amen. Amen. To watch a man who could handle with equal ease the sword and the lyre. Amen. Second, what does God's redirection of the plans of David and Nathan teach about human plans and God's will? Proverbs 16.9 tells us in the NLT, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Well, David had a heart to do the right thing. David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. David loved the Lord. This was the legacy that he really wanted to leave, not just a giant killer, but a God honor. And he wanted to build this, and Nathan... To Nathan, it sounded like the perfect idea. Go for it. In the night, the Lord spoke to Nathan and said, tell him no. And Nathan had to deliver the bad news. But David, unlike many Oriental monarchs and many people today, when God says no to something that they want to do, something that is good, David receives God's no and bows the knee and accepts it. But of course, God's no comes with that beautiful promise, probably one of the most encouraging promises in all of Scripture, that one day one of David's sons would reign forever. 
Amen. Amen. And he has established an eternal kingdom of Amen. which we are part. Amen. Um, let's continue. The third question is, why does David show kindness to Saul's grandson even after Saul treated him harshly? And why does this, what does this story teach us about God's kindness? This word kindness, as you know, there are two basic meanings of it. One is mercy or kindness as we would use it. But then another word, and it is evidenced in this passage and others, this word carries the idea of covenant loyalty. We remember that David made a covenant with Jonathan and reaffirmed that covenant twice. In both of those reaffirmations, in the first one, it was thinking that it was thought that Jonathan was going to be the one who would protect David. In the second one, it became pretty clear that David would be the protector of Jonathan and his descendants. Once David is settled in the kingdom, instead of seeking to destroy Saul's, uh, Saul's descendants, as many Oriental despots would do, David seeks to honor him, raises him up, and brings him in to, uh, into his home, into, at, to his table, and gives him a place of honor. The beautiful picture of this story is, is even though Mephibosheth is lame, he sits at David's table. And it is a glorious picture to us of how God loves and accepts us how that God sees us and in covenant loyalty to His Son, the Lord Jesus. We get brought into the king's table. We get to eat the king's food. We're not improved. We're not better. We're still lame in our feet, but we get to eat with the king. Mm. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. Amen. Um, that God not only, uh, we talked about being a part of the kingdom, but He also brings us into His family. Amen. Amen. Um, what is God's attitude toward David's horrible sin, and what does this teach us about God? You remember this story in First Samuel, excuse me, Second Samuel eleven. He's where he's not supposed to be, and anytime you're where you're not supposed to be, you can do what you're not supposed to do. You can certainly see what you're not supposed to see, and then you can do what you're not supposed to do. And he does. She becomes pregnant. He seeks to have her husband come and be with her. He won't because he's loyal to David. Because of his loyalty, he won't even abandon his post to go be with his wife. And so David, to cover it up, commits the most heinous sin of all. He sends Uriah back with his own death warrant in his hand. Now, Uriah probably couldn't read. Most people couldn't in those days. And so he didn't worry that Uriah could interpret the message. He just gives it to Joab, and Uriah is killed. And everything looks okay until the very last verse of the chapter when it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that attitude shows us God sees our heart. He knows what's going on. And He is the only the only, and the final arbiter of what sin, what it is, and how it breaks His heart. Mm. Amen. Now, this question is not part of the reading. It's not in, in the chronological Bible that we have. But uh, what comes to mind to me is Saul sins. Saul uh, disobeys God two ways, and God rejects him. David sins in a way that, from the human perspective, seems worse, but God doesn't reject him. Uh, so how, how, do we, how do we untangle this knot? That's a great question, and that's one of the questions that people have wrestled with perennially. If we look at Saul's sins, they, to us, don't appear as serious. But Saul goes where the priest, only the priest, are allowed to go and offer a sacrifice. David never does that. David never seeks to offer his own sacrifices. He always goes through the mediation of the priest, which means he respects that. 
Yes, in a moment of passion, he's overtaken in a fault. Should he have confessed it? Yes, but he does not. But David knows it's wrong the whole time. Psalm 32 tells us that the inner consequences of his sin eat at him from day to day. He groans day and night over the enormity of his sin, its heaviness. It dries him out. It makes him miserable. He's convicted. And the inner consequences eat him up, but the outer consequences consume him more. But the real difference, Jonathan, is when the two men are confronted about their sin. Both times Saul does sins that God condemns when he offers the sacrifice, when he doesn't kill the king of the Amalekites and takes their sheep, contrary to what God specifically, explicitly commanded, both times Saul seeks to justify himself and seek honor before men and blame others. When David is confronted, what does he say? I have sinned against the Lord. Now, the consequences are still severe. He says to Nathan, the man who's done this thing will repay fourfold. David does lose four sons in this transaction, and he pays the price of guilt for the rest of his life. But So the consequences are severe, but the attitude of genuine repentance and acceptance of responsibility marks the difference between Saul and David. Mm. Amen. Next, how does Absalom, uh, the son of David, steal the hearts of the people of Israel And what does his story reveal about the often subtle beginnings of a rebellion? Well, if you look at Absalom, again, God gives us David's life in rich detail. Absalom is the spoiled, firstborn, handsome, long-haired. I mean, we know his story. His hair weighs more than everybody else's, and every year when it's cut, they... They have prizes apparently for longest hair and heaviest hair, and he wins the prize every year. But if you look at Absalom, he is he's the epitome of a young person in rebellion. And let me just give you some insights that, that I think may help us to understand. He spends his parents' wealth to promote himself. He believes he deserves it. He thinks he's better than others. And so he, he spends his parents' wealth. He hires 50 men to run in for him. Bodyguards, who needs 50 bodyguards? I mean, Absalom acts like he's all that. Second, he criticizes his parents in front of others. Boy, if, you, if, my, if only you had somebody who would give you justice. I know my dad's not giving you justice, but I would give you justice if I had the throne. And so he steals the hearts of people. He lies about spiritual things. He tells his dad, listen, I'm going to go and worship. But he's not. He's going to create an insurrection. He sneaks around to fulfill his desires. And this is the subtle heart of rebellion in him. He uses others not involved. The Bible says there are a bunch of fellows that go with him who don't know what's going on. They just get sucked in. But Absalom makes it look like the conspiracy is stronger than he is. And then finally, he cloaks his sin in religious terms. If you look what he says, he sort of says, well, God told me to do it. And so There in 1512, you see him justifying what he's doing even as worship. And it's like God's given me the authority to do this. Rebellion causes people to do wicked things, but really rebellion only reveals their heart. Mm. And then suddenly with Absalom leading this rebellion, David rewinds his life back to when he was a young man fleeing from Saul, and he flees now from his own son. Mm -hmm. How does David pray as he flees from Jerusalem? And why does, the nation, why does the nation's future hinge on that simple prayer? Well, you and I know that David is a man of prayer. The Psalms reflect a heart of prayer. David has spent 
many hours before the Lord. We know he learned to pray with joy, with sorrow, to bring his complaints, to bring his praises. David learned to pray, and David prayed often in long prayers, and we know that. Probably after his repentance, in fact, I think at least four of the Psalms are repentance Psalms, but after his repentance, uh, David probably lives in a mourning and a grief over his sin, and he realizes it's cost to the kingdom, it's cost to his family, and he grieves over it. So he prays long prayers. But here, when he finds out that Absalom has uh, is coming and that Ahithophel, the counselor who, when he spoke, was as if God himself spoke, he says, he prays this very short prayer, Lord, I pray, defeat the counsel of Ahithophel, turn it to foolishness. And when he prays that, that prayer, that little prayer, is the prayer on which the, re- the rebellion falls apart, and so therefore on which the fate of the nation hinges. What this teaches us, Jonathan, and, and I want you to come in on this as well, what this teaches me for sure is that the man who learns to pray much in secret will be able to pray powerful prayers when they're necessary. He'll know the right thing to pray, the right way to ask. Amen. And there's also a thought that that is common. I hear it a lot um, in teachers that prayer is simply this spiritual discipline, and it is a spiritual discipline. But prayer is used to um, point us Godward and and shape us. It's more about aligning ourselves with God, and those those things are all true. But it's more than that. It's clear in the Bible that God works through prayers, not just in the hearts of men but he moves history along by prayer. And there there are several places that we can point, but certainly here, the battle, the war, hinges on David praying this prayer. And you can't say that God would have done the same if David had not prayed this particular prayer. Amen, no question. Hmm. Um, Lastly, how does David respond to the news of Absalom's death and who challenges him? How do personal interests sometimes conflict with biblical responsibilities? David mourns over Absalom. Absalom's his firstborn son. Absalom was the apple of his eye, the hope of the future kingdom. Everything that he had planned, Absalom has demonstrated some rashness, irresponsibility up before this time, But even in his rebellion, David loves his son. Also, David probably accepts in his heart that his sin with Bathsheba is the cause of this. In other words, that there is a spiritual connection between David's sin and Absalom's rebellion. So therefore, he feels a keen guilt. And his grief is heightened by his guilt. Because of that, he mourns with a brokenheartedness, thinking, I caused this. So his mourning is quite unusual to the point that the people steal away. They're ashamed of their victory. They've won for their king his future right to reign, and yet now they're ashamed in his presence, and all they can hear is their king wailing over Absalom. Joab comes wisely, and Joab's done a lot of dumb things. Joab is a Pretty vicious man, but in this situation, God uses Joab to speak truth to David's life. And I think the great lesson we can learn from that is we don't have to agree with everybody who speaks into our life. Sometimes hard people can speak into our lives, hard things, and we need to hear those people. And when he comes in, he speaks, and he says this, you've got to lead all the people. 
You don't get to let the weight of your guilt and the, and the mourning of your personal life affect what God has called you to do for the nation and for the king himself, for the great king. Mm. And you need to honor them. Mm. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Mack. Thanks for joining us. Listen in each week with CBT as we draw from the well of the Word to answer questions from the weekly reading of the One Year Chronological Study Bible. 